infinite numbers of number of ways to make money in the market, but each of us has to find his own way. And I'll repeat that because it's very important. There are an infinite number of ways to make money in the market, but each one of us has to find our own way. Hello, and welcome to Corvinus Business Intelligence. Today's podcast, a third in a series, is focused on the markets. We're just delighted to have as our guest on Corvinus Business Intelligence today, quantitative strategist Nicholas Vardy. This podcast was created and prepared by the Budapest Investment Club of Corvinus University's School of Business in Budapest. We are speaking to you from Budapest, the stunning and historic capital of Hungary. My name is Theodore Boone. I am a member of the faculty of Corvinus University's School of Business and one of your hosts for this program. I am joined today by my co-host, Anita Hamar, who co-chairs Corvinus's Budapest Investment Club. Nicholas Vardy, in January 2018, became the Oxford Club's first and only exchange-traded funds strategist, writing for the daily Liberty Through Wealth e-letter, formerly Investment U, which is provided to over 350,000 subscribers and its flagship newsletter, the Oxford Communique. He is also the editor of the new exchange-traded fund trading service, Oxford Swing Trader. We are going to get into some details of uh, Nicholas's background and how he got to where he is, but one thing I would like to highlight is Nicholas's prior affiliation with Corvinus University here in Budapest. Nicholas, in addition to his studies and degrees from Harvard and Stanford, in his student days, studied at Corvinus University under the prestigious Fulbright Scholars Program. Nicholas, I think it would be very interesting for our listeners, including, of course, our students, whether they are students here at Corvinus University, thinking of attending Corvinus University, or elsewhere, uh, to learn more about your background and track uh, to get to where you are. Frankly, going back to the days when you were a wee tot, um, I, I understand that one of your experiences, one of your prior jobs when you were a child, was selling flavored ice cubes uh, to people watching baseball games uh, near Pittsburgh. Uh, now, first of all, I'd like some detail on what a flavored ice cube actually is and how it tastes and how your path went from there to where you are today as such a uh, renowned global uh, investment uh, expert. Well, thank you, Ted. You know, I have to say that this is a question I've yet to receive about my uh, experience as a seller of flavored ice cubes. So to answer your question directly, flavored ice cube is basically frozen Kool-Aid. So I would mix up a pitcher of Kool-Aid and then put it in the refrigerator, freeze it up, and then put it into a little styrofoam box and take it down to the local Little League game and sell the flavored ice cubes for about five cents a piece. I take it that's how you had a pretty good profit margin there. Yeah, I had a pretty good profit margin, and uh, I had very stingy parents, and so they didn't give me an allowance, so that was the way I could, uh, I could get, my, uh, get my spending money. You'd be shocked to learn what I actually spent it on, because uh, 
when I was in, when I was in, this is just, it sounds completely ridiculous, but this is actually true. You know, I have a six-year-old son and I think about him doing this in two years. It seems ridiculous. But I, at the age of eight, I actually used my money that I saved up, which is $125 to buy a 25 volume encyclopedia of World War II. So I was, uh, I guess, a pr- pretty uh, intellectually precocious little guy, but that's just, you know, doing that right now would be quite actually kind of strange. But uh, that's what I use my money for. I later also opened a business in uh, snow plowing. So I grew up in Pittsburgh where there's a lot of snow in the, in the winter. And basically, I could learn a lot more, earn a lot more shoveling people's driveways than I could uh, selling flavored ice cubes because I get $10, $15 for shoveling a driveway. And so I actually invested in one of those um, snowplow things that they used to sell. I invested about 200 bucks into that and then started a business and ran that for a couple of uh, probably two, three, four years and earned a lot of my spending money that way. Uh, some people know in, in the U.S. there's the step called college, and I understand you, you attended uh, Stanford. What were uh, some of the areas uh, of particular interest uh, to you there, and in what ways were they foundational for the work that you're doing now? Yes, well, I kind of uh, won an academic lottery and managed to get into, uh, managed to get into Stanford. Actually, one of my classmates and, intellect- and uh, class rivals, intellectual rivals, is Susan Rice, the woman who was just not appointed presidential candidate by Joe Biden. But uh, so, you know, quite, quite a range of people that I managed to uh, be associated with. In any case, my interest, I majored in European intellectual history and in economics. And I kind of combined those uh, two by focusing, I actually wrote a couple of theses on one particular economist, the economist named Friedrich Hayek. Who was, um, who was a well-known, and since then had become a far more well-known, Nobel Prize-winning economist, one of the fathers of Austrian economics. And so for my history thesis, I wrote about the reception of his uh, book, The Road to Serfdom in the UK, where I live now. And for my economics thesis, I wrote about his debate with Oskar Lange on the calculation debate. Oskar Lange was a Polish uh, economist who basically suggested that central planned economies could be efficient if you get sophisticated enough computers to calculate how many shoes need to be, you know, manufactured this week and all that kind of stuff. And Hayek was arguing that that was basically impossible. And Hayek was a polymath. He, he, he had made contributions in psychology and, and philosophy in economics and was a wide-ranging character. And I, find, I found his work quite uh, sympathetic. Uh, members of the faculty didn't. I remember when I submitted my um, my master's thesis on Friedrich Hayek to the chairman of the Stanford History Department, he basically looked at me and he says, Nicholas, do you want me to read this or do you want me to take it straight over to the Hoover Institution next door, which is a conservative think tank on Stanford's campus? And uh, he was not too happy about my choice of uh, topics there and made my life quite unpleasant for a while. Uh, a fact that I always remind the fundraisers from Stanford who call me for money. Can I, can I ask, of course, we uh, being here at Corvinus University, uh, something that jumps out at us in your background is your, your tenure uh, here at uh, Corvinus uh, under the very well-known Fulbright program. Could you, could you tell us a bit about your work at Corvinus, what you focused on and, and um, your experience also just, just living in, in, in Budapest? Yes. So after, uh, after that time, I uh, did win a Fulbright scholarship, and I came there to work with probably the most famous Hungarian economist. Uh, I think he's still alive, Janos Kornai, but it turned out by that time he was already at Harvard, and so I had missed him. And uh, he had uh, come up with something called, you know, this is kind of Econ 101, first day, something called the soft budget constraint. And he had a lot of technical work on how 
Microeconomics is distorted by microeconomics in a socialist economy is distorted by you know false price signals by soft budget constraint behavior. Why socialist economies from a technical microeconomics a firm level um, are incredibly inefficient, and that linked into some of my thesis work that I had done at Stanford. So at that time, while I was in Hungary, I also applied to graduate programs in in, uh, in economics as well as uh, as law school. And uh, looking back on it, I probably should have gone with the economics, given what I do now, probably with the economics PhD. But instead, I ended up going to Harvard Law School, and and I was a an attorney for a while. And one of my kind of completely random distinctions, which of course has nothing to do with me, is that uh, I was in Barack Obama's class um, at Harvard, though I did not know him. And also Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch, who was actually a pretty good friend of mine in that uh, in that class. But overall, looking back on it, I probably should have taken my opportunity to uh, to do a PhD in the UK. It's uh, very interesting. Uh, just to jump a bit ahead to your investing uh, career. So we mentioned that you do quantitative investing, quantitative uh, strategy. Could you explain to our listeners what that is exactly and how is it differ from like traditional investing? Wow, boy, that talk about an open-ended question. <laughs> that, is a, that, is, that is a very tough one. Um, let me give you a very, very specific answer to one of the investment products that I run for the Oxford Club. Title there is Quantitative Strategist, which sounds probably in Congress, given my kind of social science inclinations and background. But one of the skills I have and managed to, uh, to develop over the years, which has had, again, nothing to do with traditional financial education, was trading system, system development. And so what I learned by working with a psychologist who, who taught trading systems development is a very quantitative approach to investing. And so what I do with the Oxford Club, I have a, a short-term swing trader service, which basically uh, recommends stocks and options for short-term gains over a two to 10-day period. Now, what's interesting about that particular approach is that what I did was spend a lot of time developing a system or a model, and I basically have a model that generates my buy and sell signals for me. Now, the great advantage of that is that I have taken my personal psychology out of the equation. In fact, not only have I taken my personal psychology out of it, I've even taken charts out of the equation because having studied technical analysis and knowing the fallibility, my own fallibility, when you look at a chart, you can project onto it whatever you really want to. You can, ra- you know, uh, you can rationalize whatever uh, you want to in terms of entering a position by reducing everything to a pure numerical input that appears to me um, on a spreadsheet, a number, I take out all subjective aspects of the decision-making process and basically outsource it to a back-tested and robust trading system, which then I, the results of which I then convey onto my subscribers. So this is, again, a recognition of my own fallibility in terms of making decisions, and it also psychologically outsources uh, that decision-making process, which is, uh, makes it a lot less stressful and probably a more robust type of product. So I've got that angle that I, that, that I use. In my own trading, I'm much more flexible. One of the gentlemen who I admired tremendously in the Market Wizards book uh, interviews, it was published in 1989 by Jack Schrager, was a guy named Bruce Kovner who, like me, was also a dropout of a, of a, a PhD program in history. And, uh, and he said that investing for him was like painting. He, he, he uh, compared the two in this way. He said, you know, each individual brushstroke doesn't really, doesn't make the painting. And you can make a small mistake here and a small mistake there. But in the end, you pretty much paint whatever picture that you want to, no matter how the individual brushstrokes come out individually. And this guy has a very artistic inclination. He's the guy who's financing the Lincoln Center in New York. 
and uh, sits on the board of the Juilliard School, which is a music school in New York. He's very artistically you know, inclined and also an extremely successful billionaire in the U.S. But I found that approach probably is the best way to describe my own approach, which is essentially eclectic, which relies on probably the most important insight I got from trading psychology. Tharp, the psychologist, says there are an infinite numbers of w- number of ways to make money in the market, but each of us has to find his own way. And I'll repeat that because it's very important. There are an infinite number of ways to make money in the market, but each one of us has to find our own way. That's, and that's a lot of hard work in terms of coming up with an approach to investing that fits your own psychology. And literally, the answer to that question can be anything. It's literally like uh, a style of art or a style of painting or a, or a style of music. You know, each of that is very individualistic. And so that's the approach that I have. It's very eclectic. It kind of reflects my wide range of interests. And I incorporate technical analysis, fundamental analysis, macro, macro analysis, but above all, risk management, which is, helps me uh, mitigate the impact of my bad decisions, which are many. Nick, for you, is there a role for emotion in investment? Well, boy, again, a complicated question. You know, the answer that I gave to the the service that I offer to my subscribers, the swing trading service, I explicitly focus on excising that emotion, and so I want to take take emotion away from those from that decision making process. At the same time, there has to be an outlet for your emotions because if you if you repress them, I'm really sounding like a psychologist here. If you repress them, it's they're going to manifest themselves in all sorts of great ways that you really don't want to. So for example, it's important that you have, if you, if you are interested in trading, okay, if in investing, it's important that you have an outlet for that. So for when I was running a money management firm, I would tell people that, you know, I would run their money, you know, very, very conservatively, very conventionally for the bulk of their money. Okay. But if they had an interest in following newsletters or investing, I told them to set aside a certain amount of money that would just be their trading account, okay? Because then they could look at their favorite newsletter writer or their own ideas, or they have certain you know, investment ideas they wanted to test out, and they could do that in their relatively smaller account. And because it's a relatively smaller account, it doesn't really matter. You know, it's not going to impact their financial future or their retirement or whatever. But it it's an example of why it's important to have an outlet for these type of things if you're interested in them. If you're not interested in them, just you know, give it to money manager and just forget about it and you know, go on with your life. So emotions are very important because if you have them, you need some kind of outlet for them. And I think in the investing world, that's the way I recommend it to my clients that they, uh, that they deal with that. I hope that answers your question somewhat. No, it's very, it's very helpful, uh, Nicholas. And, and I think we have time for just one more question. Unfortunately, really, the time goes so quickly when we're speaking to you, and I, I know Anita um, has, has a question she wants to be sure to ask. Okay, so, well, I have many questions, yes. but, <laughs> but maybe one of the questions is, uh, which is a short answer, I guess, would be, do you think, if you had to choose between fundamental uh, analysis, uh, value analysis, uh, or technical analysis, which one would you use? Uh, if I had to choose one, yeah, but you have to choose one. So well, I have to. Okay, I'm I'm going to give a circuitous answer and then give you the final answer. It all depends on your system objectives. Okay, that's the first question you ask in any systems development. What are your objectives? Because that's how you you know. So is is your objective to sort of just have your money work for you and make money over the long term, and you don't want to deal with it very, you know, for for a long time. You just want to get your. You just want to make sure 
that is in most cases, you know, eight out of 10 times you open up your brokerage statement at the end of the year, it's higher than it was the year before, which is generally the way it is. Or are you interested in markets and do you want to follow them? And are you kind of intrigued by the whole process? Or, you know, you do it for a living and you need to opine on the markets. I think in terms of, you know, short-term market movements, technical analysis, I think is, is, is the one that I would um, look at because that's the thing that takes the temperature of the market. Bruce Kovner, again, the gentleman who I mentioned before, he said, the, you know, invest, he, he divides investing into three different categories, fundamentals, technicals, and market tone, okay, which is essentially market psychology. And so I think those latter two, which is the market, the technicals and the, and the market tone, probably swamp the fundamentals in, uh, in, in, in his view. At the same time, you have to know the fundamentals because you know what you know what's what's diverging out there. Let, let me make a very brief kind of analogy from from Greek philosophy. If you remember Plato, he had the 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 idea of the Platonic ideal. So if you think of a, of a chair, there's some sort of Platonic ideal that's kind of floating out there, and that's the ideal chair. It's the chair quad chair, you know, in this kind of buzzword social science way or whatever. And there's an ideal chair out there. I look at valuation attempts at valuing companies similar to that. So there's people want to say this is the ideal valuation that's floating there. No matter what the market does, the valuation is going to converge to the ideal value that I've come up with based on my financial model. At the same time, Aristotle was very op was contrary. He he was very he was very empirical. You know, he looked at what actually happens in the world. He studied biology, studied politics, he, he studied stuff that actually happened. And I think technical analysis is the is the science of really looking at the collective psychology of what actually happens, while fundamental analysis is almost like a platonic effort to come up with an ideal. And, you know, people working working within the existing paradigm look for ways to sort of say, you know, argue about, well, is the chair this way or that way or whatever? And meanwhile, looking at it from a standpoint of technical analysis or market tone gives you a better idea of what's actually going on uh, in the markets. So to answer your question, I would choose technical analysis. Well, it's very unfortunate that we've run out of time, but it is very fortunate uh, that we've been able to have Nicholas Vardy uh, as our guest uh, today. It's been, among other things, I would say an inspiring uh, discussion, um, inspiring in terms of what we learned and uh, what we want to continue to learn. I would like to thank my co-host for today, Anita Hamar, uh, for joining us. And most of all, I would like to thank you, Nicholas Vardy, for this outstanding discussion. This is Theodore Boone for the Corvinus Business Intelligence Podcast, a production of the Budapest Investment Club of Corvinus University in Budapest. We leave you today with these words spoken by Benjamin Franklin. An investment in knowledge pays the best interest.